Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. It may interest you to know. I'm super excited today uh, to have an author of On Bloody Sunday. Just recently read the book, so I'm uh, it's fresh in my mind, and I'm really excited to get to talk to her. Welcome, Julianne Campbell. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Tony. Oh, I'm happy to have you. You're here in uh, you're not here in the United States though, right now. I think you said you're in you're in Derry. Yep, lovely Derry in the north of Ireland. That's and, my home. And we actually were introduced through your cousin, who's quite famous in both countries, uh, yes. hard boxer John Duddy. Yes, yes, he would be my closest cousin, kind of. They grew up in our house. So, and I just went to see him in New York recently, and it was amazing, unbelievable. So I'm glad that. Between John and us, we sorted this out. <laughs> and and you know what? I get, I think I saw you making so many appearances with John here. You know, promoting your book. <laughs> I I presumed you were still here. <laughs> I didn't realize you would you had gone back. So I'm going to jump right in. I guess because it is fresh in my mind, I'm slightly embarrassed. I, cons I consider myself a little bit of a history buff. Uh, to to the extent that, you know, uh, anybody who enjoys history or reading, uh, you know, nonfiction historical accounts can be. Um, but I knew perilously little about Bloody Sunday, right? Which is, it is a massacre in, in, in Northern Ireland uh, that happened in 1972. And uh, I, I, I mean, I, I guess I had heard of it or learned a little bit about it years ago uh, in like history books, uh, the little blurb that, you know, you'll, you know, you get to read. But I, I really am embarrassed to say I, I knew so little about this event, which is, is monumental and it's such an important story to tell. So I, I picked up your book and, you know, your, your book is literally, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, about 110 uh accounts of, yep. of oral accounts of people who were alive on that day and could you know bear witness to what they saw and heard and experienced uh, on that uh, day in 1972 20 of which I think had never before been accounted for anywhere in any mm -hmm. other historical uh, document or book or the like uh, did I get that right yep exactly right and I think it was it was really important that the book came from the perspective of the people, you know, because I, I, I could write the book, but I wasn't there. So it was really, really important that the people tell the story in their own voices. You, you know, there's there's no stronger way of telling this story. And you're right that people didn't really hear about it in America and even in England and even in the south of Ireland, because it was sort of like a, a media blackout after Bloody Sunday and the cover up happened after that. So. It very much was buried and, and, and brushed under the carpet. So there was a re-education of what happened here, kind of, whenever the family started mobilizing to try and get answers. So that's why people know about it now, or else it would have been secret forever, you know. And so there must be some sense of, uh, I'll use the word vindication, but, you know, a report was done, you know, decades later uh, that essentially clears the record slightly from the original accounts, right? Because the original accounts are uh, that the that the protesters in Derry were armed and firing first and 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 that's what led to the British soldiers, you know, reacting the way they did. And and that was the 
the version, I guess, that was sold for a long time. And then they did ultimately, decades later, do an investigation where they correct the record. I mean, there mm. must feel like some sense of vindication, at least from that. That huge vindication for the families and the people of Derry and the people of Ireland, really, whenever we had the Savile report, um, when it reported back in 2010, and it declared that everyone who was accused of being IRA members after Bloody Sunday, everybody was innocent across the board. Apart from one controversial case who was innocent, but they still said there was nail bombs on him, but that's that's another story for probably later. Uh, but the fact that dairy people and people power had made this happen and changed history and actually rectified the history books, that's what's important about Bloody Sunday, I think. And the fact that Bloody Sunday still happen across the world today. You know, these were civil rights marchers that were shot down, mostly shot in the back or shot while helping other people. So that vindication that the people were telling the truth all this time, it was immensely important to Derry. I'm sure. What Now, what drew you to this story? Um, my uncle was the first person that died on Bloody Sunday. And some people know the BBC footage because Every time Bloody Sunday's on the news or anything, they show um, a footage of a priest waving a white handkerchief covered yeah. in blood and they're carrying the boy. So that boy is my uncle Jackie. And Jackie was a champion boxer. He had no interest in politics. He was only on the march for the crack along with everyone else, you know. And he was shot in the back when he was running away and he was the first to die. So um, we always grew up in the shadow of Bloody Sunday, kind of. We weren't political in any way and we were sheltered very much from anything outside the house just in case something bad happened but we always knew about our uncle that went in a peace march and died and he, he was shot by British soldiers so that's basically all we ever knew. So my auntie was a campaigner and she lived next door and from listening to all her stories over the years and stuff that's how I sort of got interested because my mum wouldn't have been very vocal about it she would have been vocal at home but not publicly so um, I was sort of carrying on the, the work of my aunt and uncle, really, who, who took the case forward for the family. And I should say as well, John Duddy in New York, he's named after me, Uncle Jackie. He's John Francis and Jackie's John Francis, and they're both champion boxers. So um, the boxing sort of runs in the family too, something we were always very proud of, you know. Now, I mean, this story, I, I, I mean, I, I guess I, I was curious as to why now. Like, what, what about this moment in time? I mean, I can see analogies to the present history uh, that's happening, but I mean, what drew you to this moment in time to put this together? Well, it was the 50th anniversary in January past. So this whole year is the 50 years since Bloody Sunday. And I think it's even more relevant now because the British government are trying to draw a line under all legacy cases here to do with the conflict, all of them across the board. So although people of Bloody Sunday got maybe more than other families because we got a second inquiry and we got some resolution, nobody was ever held in court or we've never seen any you know, legal recourse for anything. There is a, uh, a case ongoing, but the, the likelihood is slim because of the British government playing games. So um, because the British government are planning um, against all international conventions to call a halt to all investigations of, of the troubles, which means no new inquests, no new investigations. You know, most of these cases here have never even had a cursory police investigation at the time. So that means they'll never be investigated. So I think now was the time to remind people that this is what we're talking about, you know? And Bloody Sunday is just one thing that happened here. You could write a book about so many, many have written a book about the other 
atrocities and things that have happened here on all sides. So the thought, the thought that the British government are actively trying to deny people justice and the rule of law, which is your basic right, that's why it's important now. And it's also important because most of those people that we're talking about, the eyewitnesses and the families, they're of a generation now that it was 50 years ago and we're starting to lose people. Some of the strongest voices of Bloody Sunday we've already lost, you know. So I think that's what we're, we're very mindful of the time too. And if it's not sorted out in, in these people's lifetimes, what an injustice, you know. Did you find that people easily opened up to you? Uh, because your book does focus on, again, different individual accounts of that day and what happened. And I think it was so interesting to me. It's like anything where uh, every, three people can be at the same thing and nobody perceives it or absorbs it exactly the same way. Uh, and I feel like that would have been such a personal experience, right? To be involved in that in that kind of traumatic experience. Were people willing and, and to open up to you easily or was there some element of having to, you know, cajole? Well, um, it sort of varies really. And it also depends on how traumatized people are. And a lot of people are still traumatized, particularly families and stuff. And it will be more difficult doing those interviews because you are reopening what is essentially like a raw wound for them, no matter how long has passed. So it sort of varies. I think it's easier talking to eyewitnesses than it is to relatives, but um, the, the stories that come out, it's worth persevering and it's worth, you know, taking your time and, and being gentle and getting those stories to the fore because they'll be forgotten by time otherwise. And there was 20 new interviews that hadn't really been seen anywhere else in the book. And that was last year. I was able to go and speak to a few people that, I always wanted to speak to, you know. So for me, it was some things that I could, there was far more that I couldn't speak to because we were still in a lockdown and stuff too. And it was all very, you know, I had to wait till all the restrictions eased. And so in an ideal world, I would have interviewed far many more. And for the book that it is, you could have written twice as much. And it reads, I have to say, I wasn't sure what to expect. Uh, and, and I guess I guess I didn't expect it to flow. It, it, it flows so beautifully. Like you really do weave the whole story together, even through uh, different accounts. I, I, I don't know why that surprised me. I think because you had, you know, I knew going in, you know, just from the forward alone that you had about 110 accounts. So I, I was like, wow, I wasn't really sure, uh, you know, what kind of a ride you were going to take me on. But it, yeah. it really does. It's powerful. It's a powerful book and, uh, and, and it's in quite a story. Well, my last book with the families was about the Bloody Sunday campaign itself and how they managed to, to change history. But it was more of a narrative, you know, so there was a lot of interviews, but it was within a narrative. So I knew this book would be different from the outset because this was an oral history publisher. And um, I really liked the idea of, of the smaller sections rather than huge, huge passages from people. So it builds to a picture. But um, because I knew the story so well, um, I think it began as almost like a jigsaw where I could write down, this is where I th what I think should be on the book. And that's where the chapter headings began. And then from my own memory, I went, this is who should speak here. This is who should slots in here. This person appeared here somewhere and their testimony would be here, you know. So um, 
from the jigsaw that it began. And then I actually started reaching out and thinking about what, what documentary evidence do I have here and, and what eyewitness testimony would. So it was a fascinating, fascinating project. And if I could, if I had years to do it, um, it would have been that size. <laughs> <you know? laughs> no, I mean, you, you definitely, you, you put enough together, certainly that you, you gave a clear picture, uh, you know, of the event and, uh, you know, and I, if you did, you did it justice. It, it really, it's, a, I highly recommend the book, uh, especially for history buffs, but really for anyone. I mean, there, there's, there's enough analogies as history repeats itself to a certain extent, but there's enough analogies to world history today, I think, to be drawn from your, you know, your account of what happened there in Derry. Uh, and it, it just, it's an important story. Uh, especially one that I don't think is covered enough. It's it's, mm. it's a humanity story. It really isn't in in my mind. It, it it stopped at some point being about just dairy, right? And it seemed to be mm. more about you know the humanity of the event, uh, and and it could be, have been anywhere and happened to anybody, uh, you know. And and that part is true, yeah. right? We hear stories like this all the time, and and there really was such a humanity to it. I. I was quite impressed. Yeah, I totally agree. The theme, the themes are universal, you know, um, especially in these days where people are taken to the streets to voice their discontent. And and what we saw in the 60s and early 70s here is is occurring all over the world today. And, and state violence is, is, is quite um, prevalent out there as well. So there is lessons still to be learned. And even in terms of this specific story of Bloody Sunday, what lessons have they learned? Not, not much. You know, nobody's ever been reprimanded for it. The army's never actually apologized, although the, the British Prime Minister did at the time, which meant a lot to the people of Derry. But I think the themes themselves are universal and grief is universal. And a, a lot of my work would be cross community here. And, um, you know, it's all the same. Everybody feels the same and emotions are the same. And I wanted this book to bring across like the visceral sounds and smells and, and memories of, of what happened rather than facts and cold you know, and I wanted it to have some life about it. And I think that's how this, the story carries so well is because you can see people's terror and their emotions. And and even when I was writing it, I was getting carried along in it, you know. Well, you definitely accomplished that. It's a page turner. Uh, you know, I, I, I was shocked at how much I did enjoy it, how little I knew about it, how much I enjoyed it. And it is a page turner. Mm. It doesn't read... Uh, just like some boring historical account, like you think of a fifth grade history book, it doesn't read like that at all. Um, it, it's you can you get swept up in what's happening in in, the, in your retelling of it. So I say bravo, I think, uh, bravo. Oh, thank you, job. thank you. That means a lot. So I think what was um, powerful here as well was that it was a British pub, it was an English publisher in London, and I think it was really brave of them to take on this story, which is still contentious till to, to today. You know, it's still. There's still controversy around it, but they wanted to cover it for the 50th and they didn't take out anything. They didn't change a word. You know, they took it for what it was, uh, a horrific story about the British Armed Forces. And I'm sure it has already changed loads of minds in England and Scotland because I've got some feedback from readers that said I didn't know the half of it, you know. So that's really gratifying for me that we're, even if you educate a handful of people on what actually happened, then, then I'm, I'm really happy with that. Well, well, I, yeah, I, I read lots of positive reviews, so well-deserved accolades uh, for this project. Thank you. 
Now you have a history as in journalism, am I correct? Yes, I was a reporter for the Dairy Journal for 10 years. And that was my first real writing job. And uh, it's the local paper here, it's like 270 years old. So it was really good to write, you know, to be a Dairy Journal reporter. Do you miss um, that? I miss it, but I still have my hand on sometimes, you know, if, if I needed anything or, you know, once a journal reporter, always a journal reporter, kind of. <laughs> so, uh, well, that's probably still a great relationship. Makes, yeah, that's probably what makes the book so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're a great help for any of my projects. There are a wealth of information in the journal and they would have documented everything in the conflict here. So brilliant primary evidence if you use the journal archives too. And they're always falling over themselves to help. So, um, yeah. Thanks to the journal too. <laughs> They're great. Uh, but it's really strange trying to adapt your writing because I find that every different job I do is a different style of writing. And so from being a journalist to being able to write for um, my last, my nonfiction book, the campaign book, it's totally different types of writing. So that's always a challenge, I think, trying to adapt. And now I'm doing a PhD and I'm writing academically and that is totally different again. You know, it's a real challenge. Do you have a favorite a favorite like style genre or um i think maybe i like oral history because i like other people's stories and if i could spend a lifetime writing other people's stories what a noble thing to do and then you say here here's your story that and poetry poetry would be my own thing sort of for me but that would be mm. well that's interesting i've never gotten that answer before <laughs> that's really interesting well and you, you know i I didn't get a chance to read anything but the most recent book, but you know, you, you have published other books. Mm -hmm. uh, and do you have a favorite book of yeah, your own? My poetry. I think my poetry book again, because it's it's mine and everything else I do is always for other people. But the poetry was precious to me, kind of, because it was my words and my life and my experiences, kind of. So I brought my, my debut book out in 2015, maybe, and it was called Milk Teeth. And it went really, really well, you know, and so I would still perform poetry and stuff locally and, on, you know, I've done poetry on the BBC and things like that and radio shows and I've always kept my hand on, you know, when it comes to poetry because that would be my personal, my personal joy, you know, and I actually was commissioned to write a poem this week for an 11 year old boy who was killed by a plastic bullet and it was his 40th anniversary this week in Derry. So I wrote a poem for the boy and I read it out to a crowd of hundreds on Saturday here. And um, it, it went really well. That was nice. Oh, I would love to, I would love to get an opportunity to read that. I'll send it. Thank, <laughs> thank you. I would love to see it. That's, uh, poetry is beautiful. I mean, especially with all the attention now, you know, that Emily Dickinson having the show Dickinson come out on Apple TV, uh, I think there's a, a much larger focus on poetry than there was before the show. Uh, I certainly don't have any data or statistics to say that, but I'm, I'm a reader, you know, and when now I, I go to my nook and I, and I browse what's available, you know, you'll, you'll, didn't used to get many poetry books as options of, you know, best-selling and, uh, and offers. And mm. now you see it, you know, a nice handful of poetry books there. So I'm assuming that the, that the show had some powerful impact on people uh, you know, looking back at poetry and, and opening themselves up to something that has mm. been getting less attention, I think, over the last several years. So a resurgence towards poetry. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, yeah. definitely. 
<laughs> now, I love to focus on creativity as part of the podcast. Mm-hmm. And everybody I've interviewed, you know, has a completely different process for creativity. And some I, I've, I've really talked to uh, just the, run the gambit of, you know, authors, screenwriters, uh, you know, actors, uh, musicians. And some people, you know, they, they go out for a jog or they meditate for a few hours before they can write anything or create anything new. Uh, some people, uh, you know, I, I, Matthew Dixon, I say this all the time, you know, Matthew Dixon said, I can't think anything out. I can't get an outline together. I can't work off of anything pre-prepared. Like I just have to sit behind my computer and go. Like the characters, they they come alive in my brain. They tell me what to do. And I need to write raw in the moment. Mm. What does the creative creative process look like for you? I mean, is there some process? Or do you come up with an idea while you're in the shower and let it marinate in your brain? And how does that work? Um, There Definitely for different projects, I think. You know, if I do have an idea, I always write it down. And I've got notebooks and notebooks and notebooks of ideas because they lead somewhere. You think, God, I wrote that down somewhere. Uh, but I just have always documented things anyway. I keep diaries, I write poems, and I've always documented. So my house is coming down with paper. Uh, I love that. I think, <laughs> I think my creative process, I don't know if I have one, but I write late at night and I write whenever no one else is about. So it's very much whenever my daughter goes to bed and I have those few hours between like 10 or 11 and 3 in the morning. <laughs> and, and I just, just, I know exactly where I was from the night before. Straight back in, keep going, and then when your eyes go together, he's so it's always very much but in along with my day job. It's never been something that I had the luxury of sitting and pouring over, you know. And it's always been late night. Like I, if I was on a project, I would often do like the one or two all nighters if you were on a roll, and if you know if my daughter wasn't here, you know, just keep going if you're on a roll. And so, I work better at night. I, I, historic, I do work better at night when it comes to creative things. No, I, I might be quiet. Is there any process with that? I mean, do you, do you make a cup of tea uh, and then sit mm. down or type of thing? And and copious amounts of tea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah. Um, no. I, I, now, the a book like this, uh, the the book that that I read, uh, you know, I would imagine that came from just tons of notebooks of notes and interviews and maybe maybe even recorded some of the interviews so that yeah. had to be more you know factually based i guess than mm-hmm. some of the other material that you have um is there is there a time i mean how did that kind of come to did it all come together behind a screen for you like you had all these stories and like you said well there were points where i said this person's story fits right here you know just the right way that were you like behind the screen just churning it out and that's kind of came to you (laughs) or was that like just weeks of having it marinate in your brain and you're like where does it go i mean did you lay it out on an outline in advance Mm. I think the outline was the chap the chapter outline, and once you have a rough idea of chapters, because because I know the story I was telling so well, as soon as I had the chapter outlines, th- that's the bones of it, you know. And uh, if you ever thought of people, oh God, I haven't thought of them for the book, or I haven't thought of a certain fact or something shocking, I would even if I wasn't a shower, I would stop and write it down in case you forgot. <laughs> and uh, but um, I think um, as I say, the 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 newest book, it was very much like a jigsaw and. It was very much like a wish list of what I would want to see in a book. 
So when I knew I was writing it and we were still in lockdown, I threw everything I ever wanted in a book at it. And then I started asking permissions and taking out. So I actually went about it maybe backwards, that there was some things in it that people says, no, I don't want that in it. No, I don't want to be in it. And I had to start taking stuff out. So I very much wrote the book I wanted to write first. And then there was very few that, one or two that took their accounts out just because they weren't they weren't ready for it or they weren't interested. But the story's all the poorer for it, you know, because they were in there for a reason, because they carried the, the, the narrative along in such a powerful way, you know. So, um, yeah, I think I threw in most stuff and then I kept finding nuggets and then you find exactly where it goes. And, you know, because it was such a colossal book time-wise, you know, that you had to be really particular wherever everything fitted. So um, it was fascinating, kind of, the process of it. And then always referring back to the Savile Report. Was that on the report? And the Savile Report, you can see behind me here, is like 10 volumes. So, um, so yeah. um, backing everything up then with facts and thinking, did I remember that correctly? And going back to the source and, you know. So um, I wrote the rough draft from what my wish, my dream book, and then and then cut it back and refined it from there, maybe. I'm curious of the reception of the people whose stories you're telling. Um, I assume they, you know, they all got a copy of the book at some point and, and read it. Did, did anybody give you feedback? Uh, most people are really happy and proud to be on it and happy that their story is getting out there, you know, because it is all about acknowledging what happened here. And I think for so many, for so long, people here weren't listened to. So any platform to get the, the story across and to get what people experienced here across. Um, families, eyewitnesses, they've always been very open like that, you know, always very eager to, to help, no matter how hard it was for them to share. And that always impressed me when I was younger growing up. And while we've lost some of those voices, other ones are in the book. And I think it must be very difficult to talk about things like that. But some of them are so used to talking about it for the cause, then they're sort of braver than me that they can just, and some other ones you could see that they were really upset talking. And, but it was important. They wanted their voice in it. And another few, it was their time to talk and they had never spoke before. You know, now it's time 50 years later, which imagine, you know. Hmm. You're a truth seeker. Hmm. I just love real, real life stories. You know, I really give them their voice and get them on record. So that's their history down, you know. And I've got some great interviews from years ago from other books of, you know, I've got an interview with my aunt. And she's not here anymore and things like that. And you can hear her voice. And, you know, so I like that idea, too, that I've got recordings of people that you can say to their family years later. Here you go. You know, in a nice, it's reciprocal in that way. Now, this is the, I mean, this seems to be like this latest book is the story of a lifetime. But um, I, I know writing doesn't really work that way for people who have the the writing bug and especially somebody like you that you have a background in journalism i know you're always chasing a new story right you're always hearing something new that you say wow this is this is a story i want to tell um mm. what what's what's the next big story in your mind that you want to tell i have no idea <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. I am out of ideas until I get this PhD nailed, which is a book in itself. So um so that it's very much along the same lines, my PhD. It's the impact of storytelling on communities here. So it's 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 of a similar ilk, only a 
a slightly higher, um, harder work, maybe. So um, I'm well, not allowed to take any other work until I finish that. Well, that academic writing is is also very difficult, right? Academic so writing hard. involves, I mean, you, you can't, you can't get one sentence out without, you know, citing yes. a source. And uh, that's a, a tedious type of writing, which I, I, to me, feels very different, I think, than the kind of, you know, writing that you would ordinarily do. Mm. Uh, although this last book certainly did, as you said, cited back to the report. Uh, yeah. While it did have several citations for the factual, uh, you know, aspects of it that weren't personal accounts, uh, still, I, I think that academic writing is difficult. It's it's a, that's a tedious kind of writing. Definitely, especially if you came from be, once being a reporter and you're used to condensing things and getting them short and snappy and palatable. And then like the same thing could take a, a page in an academic paper. I've already told them off about it and said, who made up academic writing, you know? <laughs> but uh, it's a challenge, but it's, it's a worthwhile challenge. You know, it's just a different way of writing. So I'm up for it. I'm up for the challenge. Hmm. Do you ever see, and I, I don't think that you've done an actual uh, completely fiction type of book nope. I think you, all your books have had a non-fiction feel to it except for the obviously the poetry uh, which would still be a very personal uh, uh, an account of emotion right of some mm -hmm. sort uh, some cathartic aspect of poetry at least that's what my um, um, my professor told me in college right <laughs> poetry has some you're supposed to have some cathartic effect on the person um, so would you ever or could you see yourself writing fiction? I don't know if I ever could. I don't know. I really admire people who can. You know, I, as I say, I read other people's stories. Um, the thought of having a beginning, middle and end and, and all those characters and all that development and all. I can't imagine how people do it. And I have friends who are novelists and I, I, I marvel at it because I think my, maybe in mine is more factual, factual. And... My mom wants me to write a novel, but I always say, oh, I haven't got one on me. But I have, there's some ideas on there. I just don't know if I would be, I don't know, I don't know. Well, I, mean, I would love to be able to do something with my old diaries because I've got diaries of my whole life. And maybe like funny things from your diaries and you could like notes to your daughter and you could write a really funny book to your daughter now. But oh, again, well, I'd love <laughs> to read that. That's That's a great idea. I mean, I think it's even more difficult to do what you do, right? When you when you're capturing somebody else, well, that's the journalist in you too, right? All every good journalist wants to get to the truth of a story, wants to investigate it, wants to fully capture the experience of the person who was, you know, involved in that moment. That's definitely the journalist in you shining through, and certainly I, I think that's where you excel. Uh, but I can see you writing as well um, fiction. And I say this because I felt that you definitely weaved the, the book together, even though there were so many different people's accounts, you mm -hmm. weaved it together like a story. Uh, and, and it had that, that feel for me. I, I, I didn't feel like I was reading like a choppy, uh, just, you know, factual, you know, just a bunch of facts thrown at me. Uh, because there are even some nonfiction books I've read. And I mean, I won't, uh, you know, certainly uh, don't, I only cover stuff on the podcast that I actually like. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've read historical books that are 
way too boring. Uh, you know, I, I make a valiant effort once I get it to get all the way through to the end, but like they're boring and they just regurgitate facts and it doesn't feel like a story that I can sink my teeth into. Uh, and I like that in a book. I really do. Mm -hmm. I, um, and I, I felt that about your book. I mean, one, I remember once reading a book and the name is, escapes me. I think it was called Duel. Uh, mm. The person had done such a good job with it. They told the story like I felt like I was in a soap opera, right? I mean, mm. these guys are saying nasty stuff about each other and who's doing what and who's cheating on who and all this stuff is going on, you know, making its way to this battle that they ultimately have. It, it, even though it was all historically based, it felt very much uh, like just a ride, you know, that of, of a story, an irresistible story. And I thought you did the very same thing. Uh, and and I guess maybe that's the compliment to why you should stay in nonfiction because you're able to, you know, take take significant amounts of factual material and send it back to us in a way that makes sense and is interesting and and you know pulls you through. I, I felt that irresistible impulse to to your uh, you know to mm. your book as well. It was like an irresistible ride, and I think that all good writing should be that way to the reader, right? It should be irresistible. Once you start it, you should feel like I have to know, like I have to keep you know keep going with this to get to the end. I That's brilliant. Mm. You know, so That's I great to hear. <laughs> I really felt that about your book, and I think that if you were to turn around and write something fiction, because you had that quality, I, I think you succeeded that as well. But I also like the fact that you just off the cuff kind of came up with, you know, just talking to me, and you're like, "Yeah, you know, when I have these diaries in my life, and wouldn't that be a great thing to my daughter?" And I was like, "Yeah, like that would be a book I would totally read too." You think? So, yeah, that's I, something that you know that you wouldn't get tired of writing, and the funniness of reading your old diaries. And you know, still, I have friends that would phone me up and say, "Do you remember so and so was going out with so and so, and the two times?" And can you find out who? And then I'll and I'll phone them up with all the crack, you know, because I've got it all written down from when we were seventeen. So it's great in that kind of way. You know, there must be some lessons on there, funny things. Oh, there has to be. I mean, even every person, right? You think back to your youth and you remember how you absorbed an event, uh, you know, when you were 16 or 17, and now you look back at yourself and you go, oh, what was I thinking? Yeah. Right? I mean, how did I see it that way? Or how did I see that person that way? Yeah. <laughs> right? So th there's, there's definitely a lesson there. And I would think uh, couching it in that way uh, to the next generation, you know, to lessons to your daughter of I was there too once right mm -hmm. I was I was I took you know I walked this path long before you walked this path yep and it was in the time with no mobile phones and things like that and like stories of having to walk miles to meet a man on a date and I was wearing a lovely white outfit and a truck went past and all this muck sprayed up on me and I didn't even know until I got to the date and I was like covered in multicolored mucky dots everywhere and you know you wouldn't have to walk that far to meet someone these days. You just contact each other and whatever and meet closer. And, you know, life's easier these days because of technology. We really had it tough when we were walking miles and cycling and Oh, yeah. now they Uber, <laughs> right? Every everybody's got Uber on their phone, and they just yeah. you know they they call the Uber. You know they put they put in the thing, and the Uber driver yeah. pops up. And we used we used to go out on Goonie adventures, the local forests and stuff, and be the Goonies and 
and and people don't leave their bedrooms these days because they're playing games and stuff. So I think it would, be, it would lend itself to funniness that way too, because you can really see the how far we've come in, in those years, yes, how far we've fallen. <laughs> I agree. There's a comedian, uh, a Victor Benedetto, um, who does a great uh, arc of jokes on that. He says, you can't punish your kids by sending them to their room anymore because everything's in their room. <laughs> I mean, the, the way you punish them is you send them outside, right? And you're like, it's a tree. That's a tree you're looking at. Like you send them outside where none of their stuff is. <gasps> it's really true. Get out and get fresh air. <laughs> Like, that's the only thing that would bother them, right? <laughs> Being away from their technology. It's definitely a different experience. You know, and I, think, I think you could make anything interesting. Uh, and and I, maybe that's your forte. Mm -hmm. Well, right? I think in my poetry book, uh, there was a couple of poems that were about language being dumbed down and all this lol and you know all these abbreviations where people don't speak proper English anymore and text messages and there was ones about um my daughter when she was young was looking at a magazine and she started doing this to try and magnify the picture in a magazine and you're all it's paper it's not digital and that really lent itself to a great poem you know I love that poem the digital dilemma and we had to say to her again you know paper isn't digital you know that's Random things, 21st century problems, eh? <laughs> the, now, what's the name of this poem? The Digital Dilemma. The Digital Dilemma. I'm all over mm. it. I'm <laughs> all over it. I want this I'll poem. say, I'll email you my book after this. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely would go out and get this poetry book. I have to tell you, <laughs> you, you piqued my curiosity. Very good. <laughs> so you don't know what you're going to be working on next. You have to first finish your academic uh, pursuit. Yes. Uh, but I'm going to be trying to work on some more poems because I would like to get a second poetry book out. And the last one took about 10 years. And the publisher always says, have you made another book on you yet? And that's a dairy publisher. So I would like to uh, eventually get another book ready. Tell me mm. about the poetry, though. You must feel a little bit like you're ripping a piece of your emotional insides out to put that on the page, right? Poetry mm. is so, um, mm. I think it's so personal. I think so. And I think in the first book, because I thought I might never get a poetry book, I think I threw everything in. But in hindsight, there was loads that were just my favourites, but they weren't really good poems that I would have taken out by now. But I think that everybody thinks that, don't they, when they put out a book of poetry? But some of them are really personal and you had to like cut them before you could publish them. Like There's one about my daddy dying and it has actual facts of me phoning my brothers and telling them and stuff. But I didn't want to remind them of, of, of those occasions. So I really shortened it. And it's a revised version, whereas I have the full version that tells me what happened. And so things like that, you have to be sort of sensitive of, sense of mindful of their sensitivities. And my family are big poetry people anyway. They'll just give me, they'll just give me abuse about it. <laughs> so <laughs> how hard was it to let that go? I mean, to let those pieces of, of you uh I mean, because there's just something so beautiful and, and really telling about, you know, what's going on in the back of your your mind and, and how you're feeling. I mean, it, it, there's something so raw about poetry, I think. And to release that, that little piece of rawness that's, you know, in mm -hmm. here and to just release it out into the world, was that hard? Yes, of course. I said to the publisher at the time, and I laughed and laughed, and I ended up using it as the opening line of an Irish Times piece years ago. But I said, showing people your poetry is very much like asking someone to look up your skirt. 
<laughs> because it is, it's, it's that kind of, whoa, what are you at there? You know, it's really personal. It's, uh, so it, it's, it's, it's like a stranger looking up your skirt, kind of. It's, it's strange. It's, it's like opening your diaries and saying, here, have a laugh. You know, so um, and yeah. there was some that I put in that I had to take out. And I was just thinking, oh, my family would absolutely crucify me if I put that in a book, you know. <laughs> so I have to be sort of mindful. And there's some funny ones and there's some ones about partying. And most of the book documents me becoming a mum. And the fact that it's it's chronological of, of, of getting pregnant and the madness of, of all that and then having a baby. And so it's sort of nice that it's interspersed with poems about Saffron. And it sort of documents her life when she was first here. So for that reason, it's class two. Does she uh, does she get it yet? I mean, is she able to read one of your poems and get it? Is it? She doesn't get it, but I think she's sort of starting slightly to be proud of me instead of being ashamed. <laughs> <laughs> well, and she goes to my former school, and she's just a first year now in St Mary's College. But there's a thing on the wall saying past pupil Julianne Campbell, author. And Saffron said, I'm not going to St. Mary's. There's a picture of you on the wall. <sighs> so I had to sort of talk around and say, that's actually something to be proud of. You don't have to pretend it's me. You don't have to pretend you know me. But it's not something to be afraid of. There's a picture of your mammy on the wall. <laughs> well, so I think she's coming around, you know. Well, what now, what does she, uh, what is she interested in? I mean, does she ever think about writing herself? Does she have that creativity inside of her? Or is she more science-minded? No, she's creative, definitely. Her daddy's a musician and I'm a writer. And she draws constantly, like, manga characters and stuff. Just mm -hmm. freehand, you know, drawing these amazing manga characters. And she's 12. So um, there would be artists in my house, too. And, and Chris, her daddy, is a musician. And so I think she's definitely got a creative streak in there somewhere. And I always tell her about, you know, express yourself, write it down, keep diaries. And I'll never look at them. You know, you put, they're yours. And I think that's really important for young people that, you know, nobody would keep diaries these days. It's all no. percolating on there. So I would like her to sort of take some of those lessons and even express herself that way that nobody ever sees it. But she's great. She's got a great vocabulary and all. She's, I'm not surprised she does coming from us. So... <laughs> But she constantly surprises me with her wit and wisdom, you know. Well, you and John are the, I, I think the only two people I know from Derry. Uh, mm -hmm. And I have to say that Derry produces great human beings from what I can tell. Um, so <laughs> I'm sure Thank your you. daughter <laughs> is fantastic. And I think your conversations with her will be very different a decade from now. Yeah. So 10 so. years mm -hmm. from now when, when I think her, creativity takes bloom and she also gets the opportunity to look at you uh, with more yeah. objectivity than she has <laughs> now right because kids see, I you, always, see their family I always different say, what do I have to do to make you proud of me and then she laughs oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it'll happen it's like a running joke kind of you know and I'm sure she's quite proud of you now, actually. Yeah. But she I, I sort of had to be, I had to be kind of sensitive when it came to the Bloody Sunday book, you know, not to let Dwayne overhear too much of it or let her see what I was working on or play any audio in front of her and all, because it's actually quite a traumatizing thing for a 12-year-old to overhear in her own house. So I have to be mindful that way too, that I work on very serious subjects. So I always have to play them down to her kind of, and she does know the basics of Bloody Sunday, but... We're not a political family. My mom wasn't political. I'm not. 
So I'm not bogging my daughter down with those kind of problems as such. So I sort of explain it to her in a people power kind of way. It's about people standing up for themselves, which I expect you to do. If you ever, you know, speak up, speak your mind, make your voice heard. And that's the lesson I think that comes from my recent work. So it's never detailed. It's sort of like, this is what people can achieve if they work together. So it's good lessons I'm trying to filter through. Yeah, and you know what I took away too, that everybody, and it's funny because I just I just covered a book that was very much centered around trauma, uh, and I and I felt that as one of the themes. Maybe I'm mistaken though, but I felt that as one of the themes in your book, uh, there is certainly the sense of recounting trauma uh, hmm. that I, that I, I felt really spoke to me as well from the book like mm -hmm. these people had this one thing in common even if they didn't know each other right but they had this truly traumatic devastating event in their history that they shared uh and that they they went through together at that time and they, I, to a certain extent they're forever bound by that you know by having experienced that trauma together mm -hmm. Uh, and just emerging from it, I mean, any trauma that you could then turn around and retell, uh, right? You, you, you become, you give voice to survival, right? Because you're on the other side. Like, I, this is, I experienced this trauma and I live to tell the story. And for me, that theme ran through your book as well. These people... I mean, I know, I think a couple of people passed away after they gave you their account, uh, you know, unrelated, uh, you know, to anything, but... I felt like these people were survivors giving yeah. testimony, giving testimony to having survived this horrific event. I totally agree. And I think the trauma angle is all more important because people didn't get aftercare after traumatic events like this, not just Bloody Sunday, anything that happened during the conflict. Nobody was offered aftercare or counseling or even are you okay? People were put on nerve tablets or things like that or they were offered medication as a form of you know their their trauma was never addressed and that trauma rippled down maybe generationally or else through communities and it was so of course you want to give those people a voice because who else was listening to them as well and that comes out in a lot of a lot of my a lot of my work is that people were never asked their their experiences and you know do you want to talk through it are you okay with it that, that unchecked trauma has a certain effect. And I think it speaks a lot to the resilience of people in the North too, that that so many people went through things here. And it didn't just stop in terms of Bloody Sunday. It didn't just stop after the shootings on Bloody Sunday. Then people were traumatized after that. Families were harassed because they were classed IRA families. The wounded were absolutely harassed for years because they were the wounded. So this trauma was sort of, perpetuated by, by the British and so if it addresses things like that that I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of that because I think that might come out naturally because people need to talk and it's important that they do you know and again it goes back to just being part of the historical record then they're on record their lives are on record their experiences are on record so I think there's immense value in that. I think that giving anybody marginalized the dignity of listening to them uh, mm -hmm. is just a noble uh, yeah. noble gesture and I, I say that uh, you know to you with the uh, 
and just that I'm so impressed by what you did. And I, and I do think uh, it's, it's, I have such respect for you. It was a very noble thing. And that not many people can say that. Not many people can say, people tend to not listen when somebody isn't a rock star or a, you know, just sought after or doesn't have a billion followers on uh, on Instagram. You know, we tend to be dismissive of, you know, people who don't, you know, mm-hmm. don't have followings and who are just going about their day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I think to to listen to yeah. somebody, especially the elderly, I find that most people don't like to listen to somebody who's older either. Uh, you know, they, they don't want to. That's where the great story. stories are, and that's, that's where, where the best stories are. <laughs> They've seen everything. They know. They remember yeah, yeah. stuff that you can only read in a book, uh, yeah. and they can tell you from firsthand. And I I I don't like that that when people won't take the time to listen. Uh, to somebody who has something valuable to say. And and I think that that's what you did. I mean, you really gave people who uh, had been traumatized and marginalized the dignity of sitting there and saying, I care and I want to hear this, you know, and hanging on that story and then telling it in such a, you know, a powerful way. Uh, it's just noble. What you did was noble. And to, for me, there's no other way. You know, this, this is the best word for it. Oh, thank you, Johnny. That's really good. Thank so, you. So cheers. I was thinking, I was thinking about my, um, a, a previous project and it was all women. And there was a book that came out of that too. And the project was Unheard Voices. And the book was called, I've got, this is the book, Beyond the Silence, right? And it was all women who had never spoken of their experiences during the Troubles. They'd never engaged in community work. Again, they were marginalized, they were ostracized. They weren't part of any community because of what had happened to them from all sides of the community here, including people related to the army or police wives, army wives, things like that. It was one of the best things I ever worked on. And you know what came through? Nobody had ever asked them, you know. And every woman said, oh, I don't really have a story to tell you. And then they would start speaking. And oh my God, the stories are harrowing. And these women just sort of, it was part of their lives and they just got on with it. And so I think that's one of the proudest things I ever done too, was working with the women and the unheard voices because it changed some of their lives that some, it wasn't just me, it was a whole project that that they cared enough to ask and listen and to document it. And there was some people like a woman from the waterside, which would have been predominantly Protestant here back in the day. And she had never been to the city side of the city. And she made friends with a Republican woman from here. And they met at the Peace Bridge and they became firm friends. These are real tangible effects of just taking the time to listen and care, you know? So that was, and the Unheard Voices Project is still ongoing in Derry. The the book was one part of it that I was hired in for. That was just oral history stories. The women, oh my God. And they're just everyday average women you would see in a supermarket and you've no idea what they actually endured and and the resilience and, and the perseverance of them you know so mm. and that's a drop in the ocean of, of the stories here so well, as I, I say i would love to do work like this forever well i have two things to say to that one i'm going to be downloading your books all day now <laughs> uh, I, can, I can email them to you after this i'll tell anyone <laughs> and two i think that yeah, thank God for people like you, 
Um, forget about my original question about fiction. Don't go to fiction ever. <laughs> <laughs> keep doing this. Keep giving voices to people who, who nobody wants to hear. Uh, but you know, you know, you know how to tell a story, right? You know how to take their experience and and give it life and 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 make an impact on those mm -hmm. who will read. I mean, to give those those uh, people voices whoever they are, who are previously invisible to the world mm -hmm. and to give that, that invisibility, you know, to a voice, I, I think I really do. I, I think it's noble and I think it's a gift and I encourage you to continue doing that because we need people like you shining lights uh, and, and opening those kind of doors for the rest of us. So. Um, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> My, my Thank heartfelt you. thanks. I'll say thanks for all the people who'll never get a chance to talk to you. Uh, mm -hmm. So I'm going to say thanks to, for, for all those people who'll never get to tell you to their face. Thank you so much. And sure, hopefully we will meet up well, next time I'm in New York. Next time. Next mm -hmm. time. And I'll tell, yeah. readers, tell people how, my listeners and, and people watching this, uh, how they can get your books. I mean, I, I mean, I download it on, on my, just on my Nook from Bars and Noble. I think you can get it from Amazon. Uh, but is there yeah. like a website that's got all your stuff on it or? Not yet. I've got a website in, in, in construction. It hasn't finished yet, but um, I think Amazon mostly. I think my poetry book is sold out, but anybody wanted it, just contact me. Uh, <laughs> and um, the Beyond the Silence book was never for sale. This was a free book, a community book, and it was uh -huh. given out to thousands. It was given to the Taoiseach, which is the Prime Minister here. It wow. was given to people who came from the Senate in America. It was given, you know, every, everybody, every dignitary that came got a copy of that book to say, here, here's some women's stories from the Troubles. Wow. So it, it travelled far. And, and it's actually on the reading list in Yale, or it was. So that was a personal boost at the time to hear cool. it was on the reading list That's at Yale. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> So and my new one is on the reading list at Boston College now in Irish Studies, and that's who that's who hosted me when I came to new, uh, Boston recently, and we had a, a week of outstanding events about the fiftieth of Bloody Sunday and its relevance today and its relevance to Irish America and really really interesting you know. So what about social media? Can we find you on social media? Yes, I am on Twitter at at Campbell Derry. And I think I'm okay at Twitter, but um, I haven't mastered Facebook yet, but I'm on it. <laughs> and I well, think just I'm just Julianne Campbell on Facebook, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, I'll put her links, uh, you know, in the comments below the video. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I know we've come to the end. This, this hour has just flown by. I truly enjoyed talking to you. You're such a delightful, intellectual, sensitive woman. Uh, again, oh, something's, something's going right over there in Derry because... Uh, wonderful people. I have, I'll give a shout out to your cousin, John Duddy, the retired boxer actor, uh, uh, who I have, hey, John. who I love. <laughs> so, yeah. so we'll say hey to John uh, and say thank you so much for, you know, coming and to talk to me and sharing your experiences. I hope you'll come back and keep me posted, especially as you're writing new stuff. I hope you'll come back and talk to me about it. Definitely. I would love to. And thank you, everyone, for listening and watching and, thank and you. your support. Brilliant. <laughs> Thanks a million. Thank you. Bye, everyone.